just wait for the evaluation forms to be circulated and then we will get underway. About the adventures we've had in the past couple years, putting together a podcast studying New Orleans history. So why are we here? Um, we are here as a group because in 2018, New Orleans will be celebrating or marking its 300th anniversary as a city. And over the past several years, certainly our organization and others have been scurrying to think of ways to do justice to this occasion. We're gonna publish books, have conferences, have parades. What, what can we do to mark the 300th anniversary of our city? Um, certainly we at the collection got a number of offers for partnerships and things that we could do to work with other organizations for the tricentennial. And to my mind, the most um, exciting of those offers came to us with the idea that we could potentially work with some other groups in town to create a podcast, create a radio show. Um, and we're like, okay, great, what, what's involved, what should we do? And we got going and our two primary partners on this, on this project are WWNO, which is our local NPR affiliate, and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at the University of New Orleans. And we have representatives of both of those wonderful groups here today. So what's needed to do a podcast? I, I hope at the end of this session we'll have a chance to talk to you, learn what you're doing, learn if you have questions. Some of the things that we knew that we needed, we needed funding. Um, the HNOC has provided some funding for this. The Midlow Center has provided a great deal of support. Certainly the radio station has been in there from the start. And we've also gotten a few other local sponsors. Um, can talk more about funding at the end of the session if you'd like. Um, we needed a producer. And Lane is going to talk about um, how she came on board. Lane Kaplan-Levinson, our producer. We needed a process. We kind of had to make this all up as we went along. And Molly Mitchell from UNO is going to talk more about the editorial process um, and answer your questions. And we also needed a name. I mean, at first it was just, let's do this show. Let's do this thing. And, and I remember the early meeting we had over at the, the radio station where we were brainstorming. And Lane had had a great idea for a name for our show. It's Tripod. Um, so what is Tripod? It, is short for tricentennial podcast. Um, but I'm also going to read the, the clever phrase that Lane came up with. A tripod also is defined as a three-legged stool used to steady a capturing device that documents a time and place, you know, what an actual physical tripod is. And so we are sort of that three-legged stool. We have our three organizations that work together. But also more broadly, we are a coalition of different types of people. We're academic historians, public historians, journalists coming together to try to do history in a new way. Um, we started on October 1st of 2015. That was our, our first broadcast episode. Um, and with that show, we looked a little, we began by looking at the founding of New Orleans, and we went on from that point to look at 
the immigrant experience of a variety of groups who had come, Croatian, Chinese, Haitian, to New Orleans. We've gone on from that point to produce nearly 40 scripted episodes and a number of what we call tripod extras, which often involve uh, additional interview material that Lane has done that allows us to look more broadly at some of the topics that we want to explore. Who are we? Well, the people here spend a lot of time working on Tripod, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are a lot of other people working very, very hard on this project. Other organizations locally, uh, the Louisiana State Museum, the Amistad Center, the Archdiocese of New Orleans, their archives. We have students from UNO who have been supporting us. So we have an editorial committee that you'll learn more about over the course of this panel. We have a broader advisory committee of scholars nationally who support our program, help us develop story ideas, and often make themselves available to be interviewed for our podcast. Um, Topics have ranged broadly. Kevin will speak a little bit about how we select topics and how we never seem to be able to do all of the stories that we would like to do. Um, you know, we started in 2015. We're going to end at some point in 2018. This is a three-year project. We could come up with enough stories to tell about New Orleans to keep it going for another 300 years. And, you know, at some point we have to decide what we can do and what we can't do. Um, but I also want to spend the time we have this morning to be honest about some of the challenges of the process of doing this job. Those of you who may already be doing podcasts can join in the conversation. Those of you who may be thinking about doing one want to give you a taste of some of what we've had to work through because everybody has a different idea about how to tell a good history story. Um, those of us who are more used to writing and telling stories through written work, that is really different from how you talk about history in a classroom or how you talk about history through an exhibition in a gallery. And it's very, very different from how you tell a good history story in a 10-minute clip on radio. So um, without further ado, I'd like the members of our panel to just briefly introduce themselves, and then we're going to play some clips from Tripod and talk about what we've experienced to develop those clips, and then we'll open the floor to questions at the end of the session. So um, maybe we'll start with Lane. Thanks. Yes, it turned. Um, okay, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Lane Cuthin Levinson. I produce Tripod, and I work, I was working at WWNO, which is the NPR member station in New Orleans, previous to this project. So before that, I was a reporter, and I covered the environment, I covered the coastal land loss crisis in Louisiana and I was a beat reporter. Um, and I thought that's what I was going to keep doing, and I went into, after a year of doing that, I went into re-sign my contract with my boss, and he said, you know, uh, you could do this, you could keep doing this for another year, covering Louisiana coast, or we have this other project that we're starting to think about. And he described this, um, 
mildly developed idea of a history show that was going to happen in some form that was going to be potentially a weekly segment and was going to be less newsy and more documentary focused. And I immediately knew that I was really, really interested in, in taking that on. Um, I studied American history in, in school, and I did a lot of radio in school, and so this was kind of a, a perfect melding of those two interests that I didn't really know was possible. Um, I was very familiar with podcasting, and I was a consumer of podcasts, but I was less familiar with the idea of a history podcast and what that could even look and sound like, aside from you know, a two-way interview where one person is just interviewing another person, or one of these really long, you know, hardcore history Dan Carlin six-hour monologues that I was not capable of doing <laughs> on my own. So I really loved that there was so much potential for what this could be. And, and just to give you an idea of the radio station in New Orleans, um, you're all, I'm sure, from all over, all over the country, WWNO is a really small station. There's only three, aside from myself, there are three reporters. So there's two coastal reporters. So when I left the environment beat, uh, there are two other people that cover that because there's plenty to cover in Louisiana when it comes to the coast. And there's an education reporter, also a lot to talk about when it comes to education in New Orleans. And there is a morning and an afternoon host, morning edition and all things considered host. And they have their own weekly magazine programs as well. That's it. So the idea that a station that's really doing a lot with bare bones, you know, to take on a project like this, I was impressed by the station's desire to take a chance and do something new. Um, that's something that in general with public media, the industry is really grappling with how do we stay relevant, how do we keep covering the local news in a really important way that the general audience is going to continue to come to us for that, but also how do we expand and move into podcasting and move into these other types of uh, experimental projects. And so that's, that's what really brought me to Tripod and to working for the first time also with people outside of my field. You know, as a journalist, I have an editor and I go out and I report a story and I do a bunch of interviews and I come back with a script and I, and I go through that editing process with one person and then I go make that story. And, you know, little did I really know when I signed on for this that all of that was, was going to go out the door and, and, and everything was, was going to change, which I think Molly will talk more about, but, um, you know, that's, that's what's been really interesting about this project is going from working just kind of in my lane with people that do radio and make radio and that's what we do to working with scholars and historians and academics and making something completely new. So, um, yeah, pass it on to... <laughs> Surround sound. Okay, good morning. Thank you for coming um, to the early session. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know if this is bad for the recording, though. Should I? Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, so, I, just briefly, who I am. My name is Mary Nile Mitchell, but I go by Molly, and I'm the co-director of the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at the University of New Orleans. I'm also a professor of history. 
um, associate professor of history and the Midlow, Midlow Endowed Chair um, in New Orleans Studies. So um, we got involved in this project um, when the radio station came to us as they also approached the historic New Orleans collection. Um, and we were very excited about it because it's sort of part of our mission um, is to sort of break down the walls between scholarship and the work that, that scholars are doing, um, particularly historians, but, but other scholars as well, and the public. And we're, we're constantly trying to figure out ways to do that. I mean, you can have public programming, you can have lectures, you can have panels, um, you know, exhibits, events, all these sorts of things. That's, that's sort of what we do at the Midlow Center. And so the opportunity um, to try radio <laughs> was, was very exciting for us. So um, while I'm a scholar of the 19th century U.S., um, we have um, uh, a wealth of, of deep knowledge on our editorial board, which I'll talk about uh, in a minute. But that, but all of that works together, and we meet in the Midlow Center and, um, and, and, and pull all that together. But for us, for the Midlow Center, our sort of thrust is that sort of how to reach the public, which I know a lot of people here at this conference are, are always grappling with. And so um, as a center that, that is within a university, to be able to reach the community more broadly is, is very exciting for us. So that's it for me. Good morning. Okay. Uh, my name is Kevin Harrell, and uh, I'm also on the editorial board. I have a PhD in American history from the University of Mississippi um, with an emphasis on 18th century Gulf South. Uh, I'm fairly new to the collection. Uh, started in March of 2014, the Historic New Orleans Collection, and they had a really hard time kind of finding a place for me at first. Um, because we had curators, and there weren't any curator positions open, uh, so they wanted to kind of retain my services in some way. Uh, so very early on in my career there, they were like, well, we'll kind of throw this project in his lap and we'll see how he does. Um, so it's been a great uh, learning process, uh, collaborating, uh, not just with um, a lot of great historians um, and scholars um, in New Orleans history, but also with the media. Um, the way the project initially started out, the, the mission and scope, um, or at least how it was posed to me, uh, was that this was going to be something um, that would uh, accentuate or highlight um, local repositories, not just our own, the Historic Loans Collection, but also other uh, repositories in the city. The city's full of these uh, great institutions um, that have these untold stories uh, how can we highlight these stories uh, in preparation for the upcoming tricentennial? Uh, and so this became the great challenge. We don't want to uh, tell stories that everyone's heard. I mean, we do sometimes, uh, but we really want to kind of emphasize things that, um, that people haven't heard. Um, so we, that was kind of what informed a lot of our decisions when we went into the early stages of kind of crafting these episodes. Um, so we, I spent several months early on um, kind of looking through family papers, fam collections, things that people, again, have not probably heard and wanted to kind of bring this to the committee. Um, and again, this whole process went through a number of stages. It's still sort of evolving, even though we're kind of narrowing it down. Uh, we're kind of winding down the process. It went through an infancy, a very awkward adolescence, and an adulthood. Um, and it's still probably not as mature as it will be in a year, but um, but uh, you know I'll get into that a little bit. But um, again, 
the original mission and scope was to talk about uh, these, these repositories. And so not to sound too melodramatic, um, but museums and repositories house the cultural souls of a nation. Um, and there's something reverent and uh, hushed about them when you go there, um, which doesn't always catch uh, the sound and fury of a high pressure situation or the touching sensitivity of a well-lived life. <clears throat> the violent drama of a moment that often uh, precipitated so much of New Orleans' history. Uh, so the purpose of the podcast was to get you out of the reading room, the library, uh, the museum gallery, and kind of plunk you down in the moment um, uh, with, a great, with great storytellers and scholars and help make you understand what went into the creation of a unique place. The original purpose of this project was to highlight the collections uh, from our repositories and bring, the, bring to light the out of the way, the obscure, the arcane, often hidden uh, in Hollinger boxes. Uh, even though the mission and scope has evolved into something uh, not quite so rigorous, because um, at one point I think not only were we kind of confined to how we decide where we want to get our subject material from. I mean, we were initially, and I'm sure we'll talk about this because we're going to step on each other's toes a lot. Uh, we were assigning months of the calendar year to specific big broad stroke themes like immigration. So for September, we're going to talk about immigration and the role it's played in the city's history. Okay, we don't do that anymore. We're much more flexible, um, but that's just one such example. And it's important to know um, how much repositories still inform much of what we do uh, when crafting or choosing episodes, but also the work of historians and other experts uh, that Lane interviews. Uh, and I'm going to play, uh, or have just play, just a brief clip uh, from one of our episodes um, that aired in October of last year that features a number, an, another one of our committee members, core committee members, Lee Loomis, who's the head um, archivist at the Archdiocese of New Orleans. And here's Lane and Lee uh, taking a tour through the archive. Roll it. So you're standing amidst thousands of books which have thousands of records in them. Lee Loomis is the Director of Archives and Records for the Archdiocese in New Orleans. She leads me through the archival vault where we stand surrounded by every baptism, marriage, and funeral recorded by the Catholic Church. Jack, our earliest funerals are? There might be some there there in those earlier are. books. A lot of people think St. Louis Cemetery number one is the city's oldest. Those graves are above ground and more accessible to tourists. But those people are wrong. Before we have St. Louis number one, we have a cemetery that was the church cemetery. So it's behind the church, a couple of blocks, which would have been outside of the city because the city stops at Dauphine. And there was a moat. <laughs> I can't imagine having a moat, but there was a moat that encircled the city. And the cemetery then was beyond the moat. New Orleans' footprint was about half the size of the current French Quarter when it was founded in 1718. So the Catholic Church created a cemetery outside the city limits across that moat to bury the dead. And everyone who died in New Orleans, white people, free people of color, enslaved people, everyone was buried in that single cemetery because everyone was Catholic. Catholicism was the only religion in the colonial territory. If you were French, if you were Spanish, if you were in Louisiana, you had to be Catholic. The St. Peter Street Cemetery remained the only burial grounds through the transfer of power from the French to the Spanish in the 1760s. 
Then in the 1780s, the Spanish decided the city had outgrown St. Peter Street. So they were like, okay, time for a new cemetery. And the Spanish government decides they're going to expropriate that land and they're then going to start another cemetery, which is St. Louis number one. The city's first above-ground cemetery. When they do that, though, they don't dig up the bones and move them. And the church is like, what? This is sacred land. You can't just build on top of all these bones. So they went to the Spanish government and they were like, please, don't do this. And what was the city's response? The city did what the city wanted to do. The government just expropriated the land and built buildings on top of it. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. So that gives you kind of a taste of how uh, Lane works. We'll have other audio clips to play as well uh, and how she can work with archivists, with historians, um, and, uh, you know, kind of give the listener something to kind of chew on there. Uh, I was, that was a particularly great episode, uh, by the way, um, because it does such a good job of kind of giving people an idea of how they can interact with history. You're parking your cars a lot of times in the French Quarter over dead bodies. I mean, it's kind of something to be uh, intrigued about. So ultimately, we had uh, two aims, to bring the lessons from the history of life in this particular place in New Orleans to a broader public uh, who would have never had the time to pick up a history monograph and uh, to assert that the history of New Orleans is also necessarily uh, a history of race, gender, sexuality, uh, memory, which is, you know, really in the news a lot today, uh, the physical and cultural uh, geographies of the city. So podcasting turned out to be a great venue for pursuing these goals. Uh, Podcasts, I don't need to say this, but they've obviously exploded in popularity in recent years, particularly among commuters, and that's when the show airs. It airs uh, Thursday mornings at 8.30 uh, during drive time. Um, uh, They're often easy uh, to download. They're uh, broadly accessible. Uh, and at a baseline cost, uh, very little to produce and distribute. Uh, they allow longer, deeper engagement with the old, uh, than the old densely packed uh, op-ed pieces, uh, op-ed think pieces, uh, and listening to a podcast often feels a lot less like work uh, than reading something from, say, like The New Yorker or whatever. Uh, the skills we employ as a committee for Tripod reflect those uh, cultivated by historians. Um, and so we have a core group of, as Jess kind of alluded to, and Molly as well, uh, that we uh, have a core group of an advisory committee, kind of, if you think of it more like as concentric circles, you know, we have a core group, some, most of which is represented here, though Lee is not here, and we have a few other people that are at every meeting every month. Uh, and we sit around a table and we kind of hash out these ideas uh, for um, episodes that we feel like uh, we want to do right away, you know, and there may be a, a situation that develops in the news where we feel like it needs immediate attention. Um, I think we can get into that in a minute. Uh, we can talk, give you some examples. Uh, or sometimes we're, we're thinking really far out ahead, you know, maybe months ahead of kind of where we want to go, and we'll have other examples of that as well. Um, we're dedicated to illuminating how, uh, illuminating how past actors made choices that both reflected and responded to the context of their lives and to sharing such lessons with our audience because our show is uh, largely built and sustained around a timeline, uh, obviously New Orleans at 300. So we hope listeners will see patterns and as well as discontinuities between episodes. And so for example, the Haitian Revolution, Haiti features very prominently in a lot of our episodes. Uh, and Lane, I'm sure she'll speak to this too. Um, we just returned from Haiti and so uh, 
the Haitian Revolution is something, it's this connection between Haiti and New Orleans. Uh, it crops up from time to time. Um, so uh, an example, I guess, would be, um, was large, this, the, the revolution itself was largely presaged by attacks from Maroons on the island. Um, and Maroons is a subject that we talked about uh, in Louisiana. We had an episode called uh, More Than a Runaway, Maroons in Louisiana that aired in December of 2015. Uh, we also had an episode called uh, Home, uh, Home Away from Home, a Haitian Exile in New Orleans that aired in October of that year. Um, we also had a few missteps with episodes that we've picked. Um, I don't want to get into that too much, but our first uh, Mythbusters episode in September of 2016 corrected a common myth associated with quadroon balls, uh, a myth that found its way into one of our scripts. Um, quadroons, of course, being free women of color who had at least one quarter African ancestry. Uh, the original episode was entitled why New Orleans leaned into tourism, explored uh, tourism and the city's relationship with that. Uh, it aired in May of 2016, and it included a very brief clip from historian Mark Souther from Cleveland State University. I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble here by talking about it, but uh, it traffics in the myth of the elaborate quadroon ball uh, where extra legal, these extra legal contracts uh, were drawn up between these uh, young free women of color and their wealthy white custodians uh, in arrangements called plassage. Of course, the practice is largely baseless uh, and mythologized. Um, and this is where historians come in to dispel these fictions, and this is where archives play a really uh, essential role in that process. Uh, work in the archives undermines this myth, and there's another clip, and I know I'm kind of probably going over my time, but there's a, a wrap it up. Okay, uh, this is a really, I, I'm just gonna read Lane. Uh, this was a clip that I, I, I meant for her to air, uh, but this is, this is really good, and this is, I can't do Lane, a Lane impression very well. But, uh, quote, the, uh, these interracial, this is Lane speaking, these are interracial couples couldn't uh, legally marry, but they lived under one roof. Barbara Trevine, who Lane is interviewing at the time, discovered this by going into the archives. Quote, and this is Barbara speaking, I dug in, uh, dug in the archive repositories, the dusty, moldy records. I developed sinus infections, vision problems, not from our archive. We were a cleaner place. Uh, and I realized that the truth was much more fascinating than anything anybody could dream up, end quote. Uh, and what they learned was that these Creole women were, in fact, pious, uh, church-going, entrepreneurial property owners, um, not the dependent concubines of, of lore. Um, I can wrap up. Let's let Molly speak. Yeah. And you want to play the whole? Okay. Or just we we don't have that clip. I don't think. Oh, we do. Okay. I'm sorry. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. There's a common myth told about 19th century New Orleans. It goes something like this. Imagine you're in an elegant dance hall in New Orleans in the early 1800s. Looking around, you see a large group of white men and free women of color who were at the time called quadroons, meaning they supposedly had a quarter African ancestry. The mothers of the free women of color are there to play matchmaker and introduce their daughters to these white men who then ask their hand in a dance. The ballroom is fancy and the invited guests look the part. When a match is made, a contract is drawn up. The white man agrees to take care of the young woman and any children she may have with him. 
This arrangement is called plassage. Plassage is defined historically as where a white man would basically have a relationship with a free woman of color where she would be kept. That's Charles Chamberlain. He teaches history at the University of New Orleans. So that he would provide her with a house and some form of income um, so that she could maintain a lifestyle. This is a, almost a vulgar way of thinking about it, but like yeah. the antebellum version of a side piece, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, mean, yeah. What Charles is describing is basically a common law marriage, and those did happen. But the idea of quadroon balls is way sexier, which helps explain why they get talked about so much. French Quarter tour guides walk by the Bourbon Orleans Hotel and talk about the famous quadroon balls that took place inside. They describe the same scene as I just did. But Charles says, try to find proof of plissage, and it's just not there. I don't believe that any contracts, any plissage contracts have ever been found or uncovered. And so this is part of the legend that uh, historians who have studied it have a hard time validating. But what about the balls where these arrangements were made? These famous quadroon balls? They had to exist, right? Well, I don't think there's any evidence that speaks to that. Welcome to... Tripod. Mythbusters. Quadroon Ball Edition. Yeah, this is actually a good way to, to, to lead into what I was going to say about sort of the editorial board and their charge and things like that. Um, I guess to start off with, and you can see that's illustrated in that clip, that there's a huge elephant in the room, particularly with New Orleans history, which is tourism. And the stories that get told about New Orleans history are, there's basically three of them. You know, there's, there's Storyville, there's voodoo, and then there's the quadrant balls. <laughs> and so you know, one of the biggest challenges for people working in public history in New Orleans trying to tell new stories is do you engage with those myths and those stories? You're trying to leave them behind. You're trying to expose people to new stories, things they don't know about, right? But can you really ignore <laughs> these things that people, these sort of myths that people tell and retell about the city. And so I think we came up with this as a solution for sort of like targeted surgery, right? You like pick it you head on, you pick the, the myth and you go after it and you, you get scholars to talk about it and you open up the, the issue, right? You don't let it seep through everything you do, you just like nip it in the bud. <laughs> so this this episode, um, for me anyway, was 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 a was, an, was one way to go about that. And we, we did, as Kevin alluded to, we had an earlier episode where the quadrant balls were referenced um, without a lot of explanation. Um, and then lots of brouhaha from the, the, not just the editorial board, but the advisory board um, it, because of the, the, the myths that get, um, pr that proliferate about the notion that there were these quadrant balls and there really, there really weren't. And, and there are scholars, um, uh, nationally, but also locally, who work on this and have done a lot of work on free women of color, and sort of, it, you know, it opened up um, a whole wealth of knowledge about that, that that the community that contradicts all of these sort of mythological tales that go on. So, um, so that turned out to be one of our most shared, most popular episodes, and people were so grateful to have it as as something that sort of really took something that's a sort of a falsehood that gets told and retold and kind of addressed it with scholarship 
um, and archival evidence and, and, and things like that. So um, the editorial board itself, just to give you a little bit of nuts and bolts, and I'm happy to, we'll, we'll all answer questions that you might have about how, the how-to, but essentially we have the editorial board, which is comprised of local museum professionals, archivists, librarians, um, historians, um, it's about, I don't know, it fluctuates in size, but it's roughly maybe, what, 10 people? Uh, we meet once a month, uh, develop story ideas, um, people bring their own expertise about who you should talk to. Um, if, we, if someone throws out an idea and someone else happens to know the scholar that, that, that's been working on this of late, so we, 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 we sort of pool our, our knowledge around, uh, um, around the story ideas um, and sort of set, um, help Lane set an agenda for developing the story, who to, who to interview, if we know the scholar, sometimes we sort of write an introduction and, and, and things like that. Um, but essentially that's where the, the, the story ideas come from and they get developed out of that in that room when we meet once a month. Then we also have a larger advisory board, um, a much larger advisory board, and all, their names are all listed on our website if you wanna check it out. Um, but scholars that are national and international who work on New Orleans. And we developed that list very early on before we even, I think before we even launched a single um, podcast, we had, had um, invited the advisory board as well as assembled the editorial board. So getting all those people in place, um, I guess in hindsight, seems like that was the right thing to do before you start a project like this, that you really get a lot of people behind it and know that you have support people that you can call on. Um, it, sometimes you need to call on them in a crisis, right? Where you're, you have a script that's supposed to air soon and you really need an answer. You need somebody to review a script who has the most expertise in a given field. Um, and so, uh, and, and other times it's simply fielding their ideas about stories that need to be done. Um, and they are always available, or make, they make themselves available to us when we need to call them and um, interview them. And I I'll say that the two clips that we've played so far, both draw on people that are already on our editorial board, which I think was just by accident. But most of the people we talk to are not on our editorial board, they are um, scholars um, you know, outside of our little, our little circle. Um, so we develop the story ideas, Lane goes out and re re reports the story essentially, does the interviews, comes up with a draft f for the script, and then we have a Google Doc, and she tells us all to go to the Google Doc when it's ready. <laughs> and we have a, a, a very brief timeline, which for scholars and academics is something you have to get used to. But if you're, if you're trying to keep up a regular production schedule, you have to get used to it. Um, we, we air every other week a new episode once the season starts, and we kind of take a break in the summer. Um, at first, we think we were trying to do one a week, which was ridiculous. It was impossible, um, mostly impossible, not because Lane couldn't do all that reporting, but because to get all the responses and then incorporate all of our responses into her script took a, it takes a lot of doing. So um, the Google Doc is amazing because everybody can just chime in, you know, in their pajamas whenever they get a chance, but they do have a, a very sort of strict window within which they can um, respond. In the Google Doc, I think it would be interesting for us all to go back and look at old arguments in the margins, but we definitely, we debate with one another um, or respond to, to each other's comments. And I, that, to me, that's a really critical part of making it work, is to have that discussion, vir you know, digitally um, amongst, uh, one, amongst our 
editorial board while the, the thing, before it gets recorded, right? It, before it leaves the paper, um, the computer screen, and goes into production, we have all of these discussions. We don't, interestingly, I think, also, we, we have discussions in the editorial meetings, but the most, I think, substantive discussions we have are actually on the Google Doc with one another. Um, and that's probably good because maybe you <laughs> say something on the Google Doc that you wouldn't say in the meeting. I think probably that's true. You can be a little bit more direct. Um, you don't have to, you can kind of, I mean, you can't be rude, but you can, you know, you can certainly express yourself um, clearly and um, directly um, in, in the Google Doc. So um, the, the other little piece of thing that I was going to talk about, um, Jess, you can play the clip and then I'll ex explain a bit about where this um, episode came from. It's July 3rd, 1982. Feminists have taken over downtown New Orleans and are marching through the streets in support of the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA. Under a scolding afternoon sun, several hundred ERA supporters wound their way from Armstrong Park through the CBD and headed for Jackson Square in a round of speeches with the theme, A New Day for ERA. The Equal Rights Amendment. This march was actually a jazz funeral, but not for a person for that amendment. And they say they decided on a jazz funeral not to bury the idea, but to praise it. The traditional jazz funeral, they say, starts out in sadness, but builds to happiness with the thought of new life. So too with this jazz funeral. The Equal Rights Amendment had just fallen three states short of being ratified, but these people came out to show they weren't going to stop fighting for the ERA, which was... Let me see if I can recite it. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's Clay Latimer, a feminist in New Orleans who says, honestly, she can't remember if she was at that march or not. But she does remember that it was a jazz funeral mourning the ERA after it wasn't ratified. By the way, most people do not know that. That's Janet Allured, a professor in Lake Charles at McNeese University. If I ask my students this, they don't know that the Equal Rights Amendment is not part of the Constitution. Janet's one of many scholars still studying why the ERA never passed. She wrote a book called Remapping Second Wave Feminism, the Long Women's Rights Movement in Louisiana. And she actually writes about feminist Clay Latimer, who was very active in the fight for the ERA. But like we said, it never passed. It was never ratified. Spoiler alert, except not really, because that's not what this story is about. What's interesting about the fight over the ERA is not that it never happened, but that it really looked like it was going to until it didn't. So I think that was actually ended up being a two-parter, is that right? Um, and so just to kind of give you uh, the anatomy of something like that, so um, I brought to the table the notion that Janet's book was, was coming out or had just come out, and she really exploded a lot of presumptions people make about the um, second wave feminism, primarily that there was no second wave feminism in the South. And she finds this incredibly vibrant group of women um, in New Orleans especially, but um, in, in the South more, more general. And she did these fabulous oral histories with women who participated in it. Um, and so I knew, I, me bringing the sort of scholarly um, uh, sort of stream into the room, I knew that, that that's new scholarship that, that we should address. Um, and so, but the other sort of component that I think makes that work is that it was right around the time of the Women's March in Washington. It was just after Women's History Month. 
Um, and so what we, ideally what we try to do is both bring in new scholarship, fresh new perspectives from scholars that we, that we know are working on um, aspects of New Orleans history and figure out how to make that timely. Uh, that that will, because even though it's a history podcast, it, it's, it is journalism in the sense you have to have some sort of hook. You have to have some sort of newsworthy, I think, to be really good at it. You know, it, the best episodes are ones that have that sort of timeliness um, to them, that they, they, uh, that they somehow dovetail with what's happening. And this um, is my way of sort of leading up to the, to the next clip that, that Lane is going to talk about. Um, but I will say an, one more sort of nuts and bolts thing about this, all these moving parts. The other thing that we try to do is if we know someone's coming to town, a scholar's going to be talking at Tulane or UNO or Xavier, one of the local universities, we try to stay on top of that. And if they're just going to be on town, Lane, we just say, Lane, go interview this, this person. We can put it in the hopper. We can talk about it, you know, what to do with it later. Um, or if there's going to be some public programming, um, Lane can um, record some of that and use it. So to give you one example, um, the Midlow Center's 25th anniversary, we had a panel um, where we invited um, Adam Rothman from Georgetown University, because that story had just broken not that long before, um, about the, uh, the enslaved people sold by Georgetown to Louisiana. And then we invited some of the descendants of, that were local to be on the panel with Adam um, at, at the Historic New Orleans Collection. So it was a, an event that sort of pulled all of our um, players together anyway, and then Lane was able to record it, and then she did some other interviews to supplement it, and she sort of turned that into an episode. So there's lots of different ways where you can sort of dovetail your existing programming, um, or it, it, you don't have to necessarily do a phone interview every time. If you know someone's coming to town, go ahead and interview them. Get it, get it um, on, uh, on the record. Um, so those are just some sort of very pragmatic um, things, but it, so it doesn't have to cost a lot of money in terms of the, the, the things that you pull into the podcast. What costs a lot of money is, is Lane. <laughs> so I'm gonna let Lane talk about, on that timeliness theme, um, what we came up with for um, the, um, the monuments coming down in New Orleans, which was, I mean, it was sort of a two-year um, saga in New Orleans before, it was well before Charlottesville, and we felt like we had to address it, but we weren't sure how, and we didn't want to just regurgitate all of the press that was coming out of New Orleans on this issue, and so we had to come at it from a different angle, and so Lane's going to talk about that. Yeah, so like Kevin had said earlier, you know, we do do a lot. We do as much planning in advance as we can. We come up with all these episodes that we want to work on, stories that are, you know, that have been on the list since day one that we still have not done. Um, and that happens because we're also in a newsroom and news is happening and things are happening in our community and we are a local show first. You know, we, we try to create episodes that have a regional and national appeal, but we are local first and that's where our heads are at. And so we have this list and we have these plans and then, you know, the Jefferson Davis monument is removed overnight at 4 a.m. and we say, okay, well, we should, we should you know, switch gears here for a second, because how could we not? Um, and so that's where we kind of pause from 
the, you know, the train that we're on, which was a decision to make too, to say, you know, do we stop? We have all these plans, we have all these episodes. That was That's a decision as a group that we make to say, yes, we are going to put these on hold. These are what we call evergreen stories that can happen, that can run at any time because they took place in, you know, 1735 and you can play them you know, in February or you could play them in June, it's gonna be the same thing. Um, but now let's talk about what's happening in our city right now. And so that then opens up a whole another can of worms. How do we approach that story? How do, we're not gonna tell the breaking news version of it. We're, we're a history podcast and we have reporters that, that are doing that. So what is our role in addressing this issue with the medium and the product that we, that we create and that we make? So, you know, we came up with a bunch of ideas. There's the, there's the kind of most obvious thought, well, we could choose one of these four monuments that New Orleans is removing. We could talk about how that monument was erected in the first place. We could tell that origin story of that monument. We could tell the backstory of one of the people that the monuments celebrated. So who is PG2 Beauregard? You know, the reality is I'm sure a lot of people walking around New Orleans don't really know who PG2 Beauregard is in the way that they know who Robert E. Lee is, who Jefferson Davis is. So, so those were ideas, you know, we could do that. Um, and, and Jess had this, had this thought that she just threw out to the group saying, hey, just saying, you know, there's someone at the collection that uncovered this really interesting story a while ago about this man named Oscar Dunn, who happened to be the first black lieutenant governor, not only of Louisiana, but of the United States. And there was supposed to be a monument made for him during reconstruction after he died. And that monument somehow never happened. So just a curveball, but we could do an episode on that. <laughs> and we were all like, oh, that's interesting. And then we all kept talking about all our other ideas. and. We kind of came eventually back to this Oscar Dunn story because, you know, I think what resonated for us as a group was that while everyone's talking about the monuments that were built and the monuments that were erected that are now being removed in certain cities, you know, what about this person that no one's ever heard of? And, and what about the impact of, you know, if that monument had been made? would people know who, who uh, this man Oscar Dunn was, who I had never heard of before you know, the email from Jess on a Tuesday. And so we, these are all ways that we say, okay, how can we insert ourselves into the contemporary dialogue that's happening, but still tell a story that no one else is telling. So uh, let's play the first couple minutes there. New Orleans has been in the national spotlight over removing four city monuments all for the lost cause of the Confederacy. These were all erected decades after the Civil War and the Reconstruction Era. But long before those monuments even went up, a different monument was supposed to go up, one honoring Reconstruction's success. But that never happened. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. introduce you to a guy named Brian Mitchell. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, and he's from New Orleans. He told me about a guy named Oscar James Dunn. Ever heard of him? Well, I hadn't either, but right around the time that this guy Oscar Dunn died, 
Here's what a journalist wrote. That there'll be three pictures that hang in the home of every African-American from that day forward. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Oscar James Dunn. Well, we know about Honest Abe. We know about Douglas, or most of us do, including that, you know, he's dead. But Dunn, not so much. I wondered how Brian knew about him. As a child, I'd spend my days after school with my great-grandmother, and she'd tell us family stories. And family stories always sort of led to important patriarchs or matriarchs in the family. And I'm a distant relative to Oscar James Dunn. Dunn is Brian's great, great, great uncle. So his family talks about Dunn. And then Brian goes to third grade. It was back in 1976. The teacher asked if anyone was related to anyone in Louisiana history that was famous. And I said, I'm related to Oscar James Dunn. And she said, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's the first black lieutenant governor, not just for Louisiana, but for the entire nation. And she said, there's never been a a black lieutenant governor in Louisiana. And eight-year-old Brian was like, uh, yeah, there was. And he's my uncle. What's even crazier is that this man, Oscar James Dunn, the great, great, great uncle of Brian Mitchell, was not only the first black lieutenant governor of the United States, he was born a slave. So, you know, that episode, again, like Molly was saying, having that peg, it's just, an, you know, it's it's obvious when we see the results. These are the episodes that have been the most popular. This is the, that's the last episode of the second season, which is where we are now. We're about to launch the third season of Tripod. And that episode, you know, NPR One, which is the NPR listening app, they took it. They've been making promos about it. Anytime anything runs about Confederate monuments, all of what happened with Charlottesville. After you hear anything on the NPR One app, there's a little promo now that says, you know, if you want to hear another Confederate monument-related story, how about a monument that never came to be? Here's this episode from Tripod out of WWNO in New Orleans. And so it's this is a national story, and it's and it's been getting that type of attention. So we've been learning as we go along the types of things that hit and, the, and finding that sweet spot, which is a really big challenge of the local story that, you know, anyone around the country can, can follow, which is obviously what NPR is trying to do all the time. Um, one other thing I want to, I might want to make a point about is that from a, from a radio producer perspective, you know, one of the biggest challenges has been doing stories where often they take place two or 300 years ago and everyone is dead. So, you know, if I'm coming from a reporter background and I go and call someone who's, you know, on a shrimp boat and he hasn't caught any shrimp in three months, that's what I'm used to, talking to someone who's dealing with something right now. And so it was a real um, kind of, flip of a switch to say, how do we make something interesting when there's no one that was actually there to talk about it? And so that's another, in terms of the anatomy of how we go about the people that we interview and the people that we include in the story, it was very important to me that we matched the quote unquote, or the actual expert, historian, academic, scholar, with someone, anyone, that had a direct personal connection to that story. And so with Oscar Dunn, it was amazing that, 
you know, we could find a descendant of Oscar Dunn who could talk about his great, great, great uncle who learned about this man from his grandma. That changes everything because then it's not just someone that's telling it to you as, you know, from a professorial point of view, which is important and necessary, but it's bringing in that personal, more intimate voice, which is one of the really kind of magical components of radio as a medium in the first place. You know, when we talked about the St. Peter Street Cemetery with the, the clip that Kevin played. Again, we're talking about the early 1700s, the first cemetery in New Orleans. Who is going to talk about that that has a connection to it? You know, we have this archaeologist, Ryan Gray, who brought me out to the site and talked all about when they did the big dig and found all these bones that were underneath the streets in the French Quarter. That's great. But we took it one step further to find the man that owns the apartment complex in the French Quarter that had no idea that he had a pool that was sitting on top of all these bones. And when someone had to knock on his door and say, hey, we got to you know, dig up your backyard. And so that, th those are ways that you meet people that are living in your city. You do have contemporary living voices that are connected to these things that happened hundreds of years ago. Um, so what Lane is probably too polite to say is that some of these vibrant voices that she is seeking to enliven our tripod episodes, the members of the editorial committee, for all of our knowledge and expertise and connections, we don't maybe always provide you with the people who would best speak to the stories you want to tell. And so for me, one of the really exciting things about this show is that we had no idea what we were doing. We're, we, we, like the whole process that we're describing, we have made up as we go along and to just sort of caricature ourselves. We've got like Lane who wants to make things exciting and we're like, slow down, slow down. You have to make it like accurate. And Molly's, you know, doing, you know, coming up with all of these wonderful scholars who are speaking in the moment about what you know doing important research but like we've all taken classes and college classes and there's academic jargon and ways that people talk that maybe doesn't lend itself perfectly to a really short interview clip on a tripod episode and you know kevin's talking about all of the ideas of bringing things out of the archives and bringing archives to life but those of you who work in Archives know that like it's not always a great radio story to say, here we are in a hushed, quiet room with you know, so like I know Kevin and I have a gazillion stories based on, you know, the family papers and other manuscripts that Kevin spends so much of his time working with. We could give you a hundred stories that we'd want to tell, and they just haven't happened yet. And it can be frustrating. We're like, you know, do our stories, but then there's the monuments controversy, and we got to cover it. So we all have our frustrations, but I think it's been a really positive, mutually frustrating experience that has allowed us to contribute what we can, hash it out at these monthly face-to-face -face meetings, and then, as Molly mentioned, really kind of hash it out in the margins of our Google Docs about what's working, what's not working, what we're, what we're saying, what kind of voices we need to add. So... Um, I do want to pause because we're approaching the end of, of our session. I want to open the floor a little bit to questions, and then we can, um, because this session is being recorded, 
if you ask a question, I would just ask that whoever answers it on the table repeat that question into the mic so that it is saved for posterity. Um, and then at the end, if we have time, we can play a little teaser of where we are going at the start of season three, which is really exciting for us. It's this um, sort of longer multi-episode um, story about Haiti, um, the trip that Lane got to take earlier. We got a grant, and, and we're going there, but we'll see if we have time to go there this morning. Um, so questions, anybody want to? Yes. Um, since I'm standing up, I'll take, <laughs> I'll take that. Um, we have various funding sources. Uh, I know we've gotten some money from an outfit called Pizza Delicious. Um, so, you know, we'll have like this like really serious episode on some dreadful thing that's happened in history. And then at the end, it'll be like, thank you, Pizza Delicious. Um, but, you know, so we have our, the, the development uh, person, Ron Biava, at WWNO is out always seeking local sources uh, of, of funding. Um, the Midlow Center is providing its professors time as well as some assistance. Uh, at UNO, we have students that have helped us at different points of time with, you know, sort of in-kind donations. It's, it's staff. It's people doing the labor. The historic New Orleans collection, while I like to think that the most important thing that we're contributing is um, our archival materials, Kevin's time, my own time as editorial and historical consultants, but we also do fund the program with, um, you know, it's one of the things that, that we have decided to support. And um, over the years, we have found that supporting programs at WWNO, it's a wonderful match for what we do, what we believe in. The audience is just a perfect fit for us. So that's some of where the funding has come from. Yes? So the, the question... The question is how, how time consuming is it for the editorial board? I don't, Molly, do you wanna? Um, it's a good question and I'm not really sure the precise answer. Uh, it feels like a lot of time when we're in the midst of an episode and we've got a script that's been sent to us and we have to address it. Um, but I'd probably maybe, depending on the, the topic and the thorniness or, or not of the script, I might spend, um, an hour on that script when it finally gets to me, but then there may be follow-up things that need to be addressed, and you know, talking to Lane on the phone, trying to help her set up interviews sometimes. So it's a lot of squeezing it in around everything else that I do, I think. And then we do meet once a month um, for, I'd say, an hour and a half in the editorial meetings and, and, and do it that way. Um, if that you know, so it's it. it, it fortunately, we have you know, as professors, you know, I have flexible with my schedule, right? So it's not. Um, I'm a, probably more flexible than than um, you know. Maybe Kevin, I don't know. Was sitting sitting at the Historic New Orleans collection on the clock, and I'm just kind of you know, is that right? So, I'm, yeah, you. <laughs> but but so I you know the, the, I'm not bound by the nine to five. So it helps to have flexible people. Yeah. I think that's right, yes. 
Yes, and I would say at first, I guess speaking as a uh, the professor, it was a little jarring to have to figure out how to fit one more thing into everything else I was doing. But now it does feel like it's just part of my regular week, and so it works fine. And it's actually, I'll speak for the professors, again, it's really fun to be able to bring this stuff to life that you've worked on so long, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, So the season usually runs sort of the academic year, essentially, um, into the very early summer. And then we take a break and we repeat episodes. Um, each episode is 10 minutes long. Um, sometimes we kind of really bump up against that. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to keep it to that. And we spill over a little bit. And if it does spill over, um, if it really needs to spill over, then we make it a two-parter. And then it, then it runs um, consecutively like that. Okay. The radio station approached the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center, and that was because the two of us had collaborated with the Library of Virginia on a um, a public program on um, the slave trade, and the, the the manager of the radio station just happened to attend that day-long thing, symposium sort of thing, at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and he was already thinking tricentennial, what are we going to do? And he so he approached both of us, would we want to collaborate? And we actually came in before they hired Lane. He had the sort of institutional partners in place. Yeah, I, I'm gonna let maybe Lane answer that. You think or yeah, I could, yeah. I could try. okay. <laughs> okay, so just to be sure, the, the question is: um, you're seeing from this model that the station invited these folks to right. do this project, but you're saying how would it work for you as an organization to pitch your local NPR station? Uh, that is a good question, and I think leads to what we hope is one of the goals of this, which is that you all should do these types of podcasts because they are, they are possible and they are really um, impactful. I think, you know, with these small NPR stations, depending on who's in, in leadership, they are open to things if they don't have to do anything. <laughs> Just honestly, if they don't have to spend any money, if they don't need to give up any of their talent, if they don't have to go, the less, I mean, it's, it's harsh, but it's true. It really is the reality. And I think depending on who, you know, what type of general manager you have at your station, if you come up with a really good idea and you give examples and say, you know, for, it's most likely that those people are going to a one or two conferences a year where they're hearing that public media needs to wake up and join the 21st century and do these types of things. And they'll, they'll know that, they'll have that on their mind. And if you come and say, you know, we have, we have these people, we have these people on board that can help with all the research and we just need to find one person to make it, that could be someone within the NPR station already that's looking to have, take like a lateral move like I did. Um, or find someone new because the other, you know, thing that stations always want to do and never have the capacity to really look out for is engage with the freelance producers also in their community. So there are people in your city that don't work at the NPR station that are radio producers that want 
badly to work at the NPR station or to have some affiliation with that station. And so some of it is maybe even doing some of the legwork in advance, figuring out what type of radio freelance community there is where you live and saying, hey, we know that there are these three potential great candidates for this role. Um, and there are some models that we can look at. Tripod is one of them. And here's how you know we could do this. The one other thing I wanted to make a, a point about, which was in regards to your question with how long the episodes are, 10 minutes is really hard. These stories are obviously uh, complex, complicated, controversial at times. And so to make an episode that's that short is a challenge every week. I think we're getting better at it. I'm getting better at it because uh, that's a new time format for me. The reason that we did it, which is something I do suggest despite wishing that these could be 20, 30 minute episodes, is to hit that drive time mark that Kevin mentioned. Because 8.30 in the morning is when the most people, period, are listening to NPR over the 24-hour course of a day. And so that slot is an automatic audience that, as a podcast, you know, podcasters would, would salivate over that. Because when you have a podcast, you're, half of your challenge is trying to figure out how to get people to realize you exist how to get an audience, and we come on the air and we have 15,000 people or more that are listening to us without us having to lift a finger. And that's the benefit of having to really cram those stories into those 10-minute segments. And because we're a podcast, we've developed this Tripod Extra uh, you know, idea, which is extra work, of course, but it allows us to say, hey, that interview with that person was so interesting and we only got to use two minutes of it, so we're gonna run the whole 45-minute interview online or via podcast and at the end of the episode we say if you want to hear more from Brian Mitchell the descendant of Oscar Dunn go listen to the full interview with him and Lane you know uh, in a, and that's a podcast ex exclusive which takes the on-air broadcast captive audience over to that on-demand podcast audience and that's how we have or attempt some of that crossover. Great questions. I'll answer the first one. Um, the first question was, you know, it's really important to have these personal connections and, and to have voices in the stories that are not just uh, scholars or, or historians or, or professors. So, but what if they're really boring and you just don't know what to do with them because they're standing there saying, yes, my great grandma was there. Um, and I mean, the first answer that I would have is try to find somebody else. I mean, that's just the, the quickest thing I would do is say, you know, who else, 
who else could, could possibly have this connection? Because you're right, that is extremely important. You do want them to be animated and, and, and interesting. Sometimes, even if their voice sounds good, that's enough. So I'm always thinking, what is this person bringing to the table? You know, are they funny? Or if they're not funny, is is that does that is that voice distinct? And is it going to sound good on the radio? And is that going to be enough to have someone listening to them? Um, so there's a lot of ways that a person can work. The other thing that I would say is that, you know, the gift of narrative storytelling is that you can write around the voices, and so you can use that person and ha have them. Be say very short clips and lead into it. So you could write into it where you say most of it in the way that you want to and let them deliver one line knowing that they're not going to be able to carry, you know, 30 full seconds on their own. And so if they're the only option in the writing of the story, you can really kind of use them to the way that you actually really want to use them and have them kind of just drop in these moments that only they can, but in very short, small increments. And I, I'm not the only one who could answer this question, but your, your second question about like when it comes down to it, who makes the final editorial decision? I mean, I think essentially that is Lane. She is the producer of, of this show. Um, but that has been one of the big things that we've had to work out over the years. And you know, my role at the Historic New Orleans Collection, I do a variety of things, but I'm primarily an editor. And so Molly talked about this editorial process that, that we've developed. And um, while we are not rude in the margins of our Google Docs, we're, we're pointed in what we do. Sometimes we like take the electronic red pen and cross out some of the words that Lane has written and somebody will reinstate them. And you know, so, so there are sort of editorial line editing back and forth, but I, I just kind of briefly point to, to one of the, the episodes that we had a lot of disagreement over. This was back last summer, um, sort of at the height uh, of some of the shootings that were causing so much distress nationally. There was um, a sh police shooting in Baton Rouge. Um, lot, you know, again, this was an, another one of those moments where, as a group, we felt that we needed to be responding to what was going on in our communities, but how to do that with a history podcast. We had an episode that, that we developed that looked at um, a massacre in 1866, the Mechanics Institute, and we looked at that through, um, again, we had a scholar who was studying Afro-Creole protest poetry that had been written in French in New Orleans in the 19th century, sort of a beautiful way, again, of getting into this understanding that what we see around us today, um, there are precedents and there are also ways to learn from the arts and from the way that everyday people respond to stress and in, 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 in tragedy in, in their community. So we have this like beautiful, I think, episode with sort of poetic response to a massacre in the streets of New Orleans in 1866. But Lane, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but you also had some audio from some of the going on at the moment, shoot, you know, Minneapolis and Baton Rouge. And, um, Lane and, and her editor at uh, the radio station were interested in dropping in some of this audio because there's only so much, as, as you've pointed to, that the, your interviewees can say. And this was like really kind of a visceral 
opportunity to, and many of us on the editorial board were like, no way, we do not want to play those present day news clips. Like the context is apparent. We don't need to go there. And, and I don't know that we ever all agreed, but in terms of where we were going to end up, I remember clearly being on the phone with Eve Tro for like an hour, one of Lane's editors, for like an hour and a half trying <laughs> to talk through what we thought. So it's really hard. And, and I think the takeaway is we, we don't always all have the same idea about how we would craft an episode. Um, this is Lane's show, and, and so she writes it. We support it as best we can, but that doesn't mean that we don't have some pretty kind of dig-in opportunities to debate and edit and um, think about how we would tell a history story. So, yeah. What's the public reaction been to the show? Okay, the, the question, what, what is the public reaction? I think it's been very good. Um, but I don't necessarily have numbers. I mean, we, we have picked up some, you know, local awards for what we're doing. We have seen good traffic. Um, I should mention that part of what Kevin does as well is he works with um, Lane and people at the station to find archival photographs and other things to illustrate. We have a, a web, you know, you can go to the website and see some illustrations of what's there. We have a Facebook page. We haven't been super strong on social media. That's something that I think we probably could have done better, but I don't know if anyone here wants to speak to public response. Lane has been out in some of the schools. She has actually worked with students to produce one full episode. Um, but I would say a good response, but I'm afraid I can't quantify it in the way that I would like to. Maybe we are saved in that since our organization is a big funder, we haven't been like, show us the numbers, what, you know, how, how many people are listening. But do you have kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, I think the you know, we know that we have the morning edition. We know that we have the morning edition audience. Uh, in terms of the station, this is the first type of show that they've done like this. And so there's been a lot of positive feedback. Uh, like Jess was saying, there are the, the schools in New Orleans, elementary, middle, and high school, uh, have all either emailed inviting me to come speak with with a class or do some type of workshop with the class or emailing just to say we're using these episodes in our curriculum now we're using this episode when we're talking about reconstruction and that's really cool because we hoped that that would happen but because we also only have the capacity that we have we're not you know we haven't been you know we don't have like the academic curriculum uh, branch of our show department that's reaching out to all the schools. And so it's been really nice to see those people reaching out and saying, we're using your content to supplement the content that we already you know, have with whatever textbooks that we're using. So that's been really exciting. Um, and you know, now for, for uh, something like NPR to say you know, that, we're, that they're promoting those episodes, you know, that's something else that we realized that we might not have known in the beginning is that I'm grateful that this was not a one year long project. You know, like most things, when we talk about starting something and the sustainability of something, I wouldn't recommend doing this for a year because 
it wasn't until halfway through the second year that a we all figured out what we were doing, how to work together, how to really you know have a system and a routine, but also to see that impact and to see that people were catching on, to see that this wasn't just kind of a one-off miniseries and that people could really get used to it and become you know invested in it. Um, and so I would I would suggest and recommend if you're thinking about something like this to think about it as a multi-year project, both in terms of figuring out your best practices in making it and also to get that the longevity of that type of public response. Uh, do we do we ask one more? I have one, one more. Okay, yeah. Uh, the question was, what type of marketing have we done to try to expand the audience beyond the captive drive time NPR Morning Edition audience? Uh, we, I know that the station pu uh, put a bunch of print ads, uh, all you know, in a bunch of different magazines and periodicals across the city to get the word out. And I know that on air, which is still the NPR audience, we did a lot of promos. So you can run these 30-second promos throughout the day so that people that are listening to Fresh Air at 7 p.m. can actually hear that this thing is happening. And that if they you know, are up at 6 and working by 7, they can still listen to Tripod on their own time by using the podcast, which all of you can too. And I encourage you to go subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Um, but so yeah, so I know we, we definitely used our own broadcasting megaphone, which is the best thing we have to offer. And we ran those spots across the clock. And then we had we had print ads. And the other benefit of having a large, you know, extended family, you know, we have this 10 person editorial committee. And then we have like a 30 person advisory board of, of professors and scholars across the country that can also just you know, they're doing work for us too just by telling people about it. So the more people you have on board as your kind of brand ambassadors, the more people that you have letting people know that this thing exists in the first place. Oh, right, yes, and, and Steve Inskeep, if you listen to uh, NPR, he, you know, social media too, he tweeted about Tripod, and you, f you figure out ways to do that. Um, and, you know, our social media is bare bones, you know, really realizing you need a full-time social media person to be doing the types of things that are possible now with social media. But interestingly, what I have found, we have a Twitter, we have a Facebook, and we have an Instagram. And Instagram has been the most popular. And people are really uh, engaged and drawn to the images that we're posting kind of one at a time on that on, on that medium. So it's all, you know, it all depends on, on your local audience and how they're using social media, but we our Instagram has been pretty successful. I'm gonna have to read it off of the postcard. Pick up a postcard. <laughs> tripod. Yeah. Wwno.org/tripod. Take a postcard. Um, we are over time, so as usual at these ASLH sessions, please do, if you have the time, fill out one of the assessment forms. We'll all stick around and be happy to talk more about specific questions you might have, so thanks for coming.